Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, I'll just pray. If you would, please turn, to, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 for a second. Matthew 28. Lord, we are just so thankful, God, to be here. We know that every time we gather together, Jesus, you said you're right here. And uh, your promise to us, Lord, is if you're lifted up, and you're the one that's seen and talked about, Lord, that you'll draw men to your side, Lord, to yourself. And that's what we want today, Lord. That's our desire. That's our prayer. That's what we need personally, Lord, is to be closer to you, Lord. Uh, you alone have the words of eternal life, Jesus. And I pray today, this morning, you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, a sensitivity to your spirit, God, that we'd allow you to minister to the areas of our heart that need it so much, Lord. We love you. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for Calvary and all you do for us, Lord. We love you. Give you this morning, God. Pray that you'd baptize us afresh, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. and uh, Fill us uh, anew, Lord, that you might send us out, Lord, to accomplish all that you've asked us to do uh, with our lives, Jesus. In your name, amen. So uh, next week is the church baptism. It's all going to be at Breezeway Barn uh, right after service. Um, we've done a lot of baptisms. We've done them at Silver Lake. We've done them on the Genesee River. We've done them in swimming pools. Uh, you know, and I just thought this is a refresher course. You probably, guys probably already know what baptism's all about, but I thought I'd talk about it just for a few minutes because there's, there's a little confusion. You're like, do you sprinkle or do you immerse? Uh, who gets baptized, babies or adults? When's the best time, you know? So uh, we're just going to take a look at a few scriptures. Some people think, you know, too much about baptism, like it's overly important, like I'm not saved unless I'm baptized. And some people think that it's unimportant, that because I'm saved, I don't need to be baptized. And that's wrong thinking too. They're both wrong thinking. Uh, but the word baptized, maybe you already know this, is, is just simply, it's the word baptizo, and it simply means to immerse or submerge. It was, it's used in the Bible, but it's used in secular language of the day, too. Like when you dye a garment, you would immerse it. Remember, Lydia was a seller of purple in the book of Acts, and she would take a garment and immerse it to change its color. That's how it would change. It would get immersed. It would get submerged. Or a sunken ship. If a ship would get sunk, it would go down. It's totally immersed. That's what the word means, to baptize. So hopefully that clears some things up for you guys, but it's not salvation. It's not, you're not saved because you're baptized. You get baptized because you are saved, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it says, Paul says this, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, salvation. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, not of works, works lest any man should boast, right? You're not going to go to heaven and say, I got baptized by Chuck Smith in the, you know, Pirate's Cove or, or, you know, Greg Laurie or whatever. They just had a big baptism there, 4,500 people or 4,800 people. And because you got baptized in a certain place, maybe you went to Israel, you go to the Jordan River uh, and you got baptized. No, that's not how you're saved. It's a gift of God. Right? You're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary for you. Titus verse, chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, righteous deeds, righteous acts, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So why do we do it then? Right? Why do we get baptized? What's the purpose? Well, Jesus tells his disciples here in Matthew 28, I, I Maybe I read this last week. I know I referenced it. Um, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Teach them, right? Jesus makes converts. Jesus Christ saves people. But his call for us is to witness and then make disciples, to teach people. They, they look at our lives, our language, what we say. He says, teach them, disciple them. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, I'm commanding you, teach them to do everything I've commanded you. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and says, hey, I got to get, he said, I got to get baptized. John the Baptist's like, man, I'm, you need, you got to baptize me. I'm not worthy to, to, to unloose your shoe latch, your, your sandal straps. And he's like, no, I have to fulfill all, all righteousness. I have to do this. If I'm expecting other people to be baptized, I'm going to get baptized. And we have that account in all four Gospels. Jesus Christ getting, getting baptized, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends on him. There's power in obedience. He baptized him. Right? So he was baptized, just immersed, dunked in the Jordan River, and then the Holy Spirit comes on him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? Baptism is obedience. It's the first thing of obedience that God's called you to do as a Christian, and it's the simplest thing you can do. It's the easiest thing you can do. Right? Who can't get dunked? Like People are doing it all the time. Like you're, you're, but it's a witness to the world. It's a visual version of the gospel. People witness it. They're like, what are these wackos doing? Like, what's going on? And people would, you know, we do it in, 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 on Silver Lake, and boats would drive by, and they'd stop. Like, what is going on? This huge group of people, what are they doing in the water? What's going on? Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to people, like, what's going on? They're not swimming. They're not, they don't have floaties, whatever. Uh, it's, they're just, what are they doing? And it's, it's a witness to the world. But I thought I'd look at a couple scriptures, and then I do want to jump into 1 Samuel. If you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Because if you haven't been baptized, you should be. It should be on your radar. If you're born again, if you're a Christian... Acts chapter 2, we'll quickly look at a couple of scriptures. Just read them, and I'll comment briefly on them, uh, just so you know. And like I said, again, this is probably just a refresher. You guys probably know this. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, this is the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this sermon where 3,000 men get saved, 3,000 people get saved. And he preaches the gospel and shares Jesus Christ with people. And verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Messiah. And when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. Their conscience was pricked, their heart was pricked, and they said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do now? Right? That's what they told John the Baptist. That's what they asked John the Baptist when, when John was preaching the gospel and baptizing people in the Jordan River. Like, what do we do? All right, I believe the message. I want to respond to it. What do I do? And John would tell people, hey, go do this, man. Don't exact more tax than quit lying. Don't exact too much tax. You know, the, the, the centurions and, and the soldiers, hey, quit muscling people around and pressuring them and taking money and do it. You know, be honest. So he would tell them what to do, what you should and shouldn't do. And they said, what, you know, what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent. That's the first thing you need to do. Repent. Metanoia, it's a change of mind, to change your thought to agree with God. That's the first thing you do. All right. You want to do something? You got to get saved. There needs to be repentance, a change. And let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promises to you and your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who, who gladly received his word, they were baptized. 
right? They received the word. They accepted it. They acknowledged it. Man, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. I need a Savior. And 3,000 souls were added to them. And that word for in verse 38, everyone, he says, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins. It really means because of, therefore, right? Because of the, the remission of sins. Turn to Acts chapter 10. We'll be done hopefully in just a minute. I just read this to my kids last night. This account of Cornelius, he sends for Peter. Peter sees the sheet coming out of heaven and uh, says this. In verse 32, send therefore to Joppa, in Acts chapter 10, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. And he's lodging in the house of, of Simon the Tanner by the sea, when he has come, he'll speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And the word which God sent to his children Israel, preaching through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John, which, we pre which, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And God has raised him up, verse 40, on the third day and showed him openly. But not to all the people, but to witness. But to witness chosen before God, even unto us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be, judge, to be the judge of the living and of the dead. I probably could have started in verse 41. Uh, but to him, all the prophets, prophets witnessed through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. It's simply belief. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. They were, received the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and, and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days, probably to explain things in greater ways, more fully. Right, So these guys received the Spirit before they were even baptized. They were saved. They received the Word of God. You have to be saved. And then they were baptized. We won't look at it because of time. Uh, if you look, you can write it down. Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and Paul and Silas while they were in prison. You know, these guys were saved and then they were baptized. It's important. It's an important part of what God's called you to do. It's a visual witness and a testimony to the world. It's a type of cleansing when someone goes down into the water, right? Most people to get in the, in the water, like, yeah, we could go swimming when it's hot, but it's really a picture of cleansing. It's a picture of death and burial of the old man, and new life, resurrection of the new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So when you're raised at baptism, we see the power of the Spirit falling on people. It doesn't mean it happens, it can happen before that. That's power that God wants you to have. 
and me to have, that we need to walk this life that you can't do on your own. We need God living inside of us, right? To be all that he's called us to be. Can't do it on our own. That's the life we were living before we were in Christ. So to be baptized, it's a command. Jesus told people, hey, you need to be baptized. He told his disciples to go baptize. We see it in the book of Acts. Go be baptized. It's a measure of obedience, something that God's called you to do, right? Everything, you know, if you can be baptized and, and realize, you know what? The old man is dead. When I come up out of this water, you can receive the reality and the power that you can live a new life, that you're a new creation. And now you leave there, people see that, and your life is a witness. What does that mean? I don't understand it. Wow, that's what Jesus did. Man, he went in the tomb for three days. He raised to life again, and he gives us power. He gives us eternal life, right? That's the picture. You're cleansed. You can walk in newness of life and the reality of that, right? So next week is the church baptism. If you haven't been baptized, you really should consider it, right? Uh, and, and it doesn't, it, it, the reality is it doesn't have to be a pastor. It, it, you have to be a believer, though. Like babies who, lots of babies were sprinkled. I was sprinkled. I grew up in a church that, you know, they dro- dropped a couple drops of water on my forehead. And that's fine, nothing wrong with it, but it's not baptism. It's not biblical baptism, right? So if that hasn't happened to you, you should prayerfully consider it. We're going to have it next week. So if you want to, turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel 27. First Samuel chapter 27. A lot of heavy hitters in Samuel, in the book of First Samuel, right? We have Hannah, this prayer warrior. We have Samuel, this guy, a kingmaker. He anoints Saul as king. David is king. He's the last of the Old Testament uh, judges, the beginning of this line of prophets, a man of God and a great example. We have Saul. You know, we can relate to Saul very easily, made lots of mistakes. David made lots of mistakes, has great highs and great lows. Jonathan, there's amazing spiritual lessons in 1 Samuel. And the reality is, is they're real people. They're honest. If God had to write a story, had to, had to put your life in a book, you can think of, think of your life. If you're saved here today and, and, and even before you were saved, and what would God put right down for us to learn from your life, from your mistakes, from your highs and your lows? Right? That's what we have, have in David's life. And we're going to read about one of his low points here. David's going to go flee to Gath again today. We already read he did that uh, initially when Saul started chasing him. And David does it again. How many of us make the same mistake twice or three times or four times, right? But what if your life was written in a book for everyone to read? What would be there? What are the highs? What are the lows? What are the things written? Things you're like, oh my goodness, hopefully God doesn't write that. But that's what God does for us. He takes humans, people, because that's who we are. And we make mistakes. And we have flaws and failures. We have highs and lows. And David here has one. Our walk with the Lord, you know, you read the New Testament, it's, it, it's, it's described as, rest for, as wrestling, running, fighting, having endurance, warfare. Like, it's a battle. But the greatest battle, I think, for you and I is our mind holding on to what God says about us and who we are and what the devil's telling us in our flesh and this old nature that wants to resurrect itself and pull us away from the Lord. And that's sometimes the greatest battle. You know, Romans chapter 12 says our mind should be renewed. How do you renew your mind, right? ESPN, CNN, uh, is that how we renew our mind? Netflix, Amazon, Facebook? No. We renew our mind in the word of God. We need to be reminded what God has told us and what he says about you and the direction of our life. 
And, and renewing that and saying, you know what? That's what I want to walk in. That's what I want to do. That's what I believe. I hold on to your word, God. You remember Abraham, and, and I referenced this a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 15. God comes to Abraham after he rescues Lot and says, hey, I'm, I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. And then Abraham says, well, Lord, his name was Abram at the time, before God changed it. He says, Lord, what do I do seeing I go childless? You promised me. You see, you know, you've, you've made all these promises, Lord, but it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it, right? And we walk through this life a lot of times, and what God said and where we're at, it, they, they look like two different things. Like, Man, how can this be? Is that even possible? What are you going to do? How can you make that happen, God? And so God tells Abram, he says, listen, we're going to cut a covenant. You're going to take a, 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 a bull or a cow. Uh, you're going to take a ram. You're going to take a goat. You're going to take a pigeon and some other bird. I can't remember. You're going to cut them all in half except for the birds. And that's what they would do to cut a covenant they would cut them, and they would put parts on either side. Kind of a bloody process, you know, if you've ever, if you hunt or if you've ever been to a, you know, it's, that's what my, my you know, my, my kids, we first get it, they get a deer or it's like, oh my goodness, I got to gut him, Dad, can you help me? Yeah, and it's kind of a rough process, but there it is. It's memorable, and that's what the covenant is meant to be, memorable. Listen, look at who, we're, all right, and they would hold hands, and they would walk through these animals, and it would be very memorable, the promise made, the covenant, whether it's purchase of land or something that's going to happen, and they would walk through, and it would be very memorable, right? You have those things that are in your life that are very memorable. So Abraham does that. He cuts these animals, puts them there, and... He's there all day waiting. He's there all day. And, and what, if you remember the, the account, what happens is vultures start coming in. Right? You guys see them flying around here. Now we've got a couple other cool birds that are flying around here. But they're, they're swooping down, and they want to come in, and they want to rob and eat some of that carcass. And Abraham, it says that he's shooing them away all day. And by the time it got to evening... He's wiped out, and he passes out, but really his only job is to shoo these vultures away that want to come down and swoop in on this carcass, right? And there's a picture there for us, because as soon as Abraham goes to sleep, then God shows up, and he walks through and barbecues those things. And then he tells Abraham, listen, Abraham, not only are you going to have your own seed out of your own loins, and he goes on and gives him a great explanation of even more things that are going to go on in his life with his seed and how they're going to you know, stay in the land and there's going to be the iniquity of the Amorites and 400 years and then there's going to be judgment. They're going to, you know, there's a whole prophecy of what's going to happen to that nation. Amazing. It wasn't even a nation yet. Just Abraham and Sarah with no kids. But Abraham's only job was to shoo these vultures away. And that's what Jesus says about the sower that went to sow the seed. Right? He's sowing seed, and some fell by the wayside. And it says that the birds of the air would come down, and they would eat that seed and rob it. And he explains that the seed is the word of God, and it wants to penetrate a man's heart and change a man's mind and direction. But these birds, these vultures come down and they swoop on it and they take it away and they rob it. It can never grow. It can never be or bear fruit and be what it's supposed to be. Well, that's what the devil does in your life. Jesus also references that. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's this tiny little seed, this tiny little herb, puts it in the ground and it grows up and doesn't just become this herb, but the kingdom of God, it becomes this great tree and the birds the fowls of the air come and lodge themselves in it, right? I've got this tree. It's called a Canada red outside of my, our, our uh, sunroom at our house where we do devotions. And, and every day we're in there, I'm like, look, hon, look at these birds. And just flocks, whole flocks of birds will come in, and they'll eat all these little red berries, and then they'll fly away, and they're fighting, and, and, they're, and they're just robbing. And that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to fly in during your devotions, 
your time in the Word, or your time when you leave the Word, and he wants to rob the Word of God out of your life. He wants to steal the truth of the Word of God. Well, that's what's going on in David's life, right? David's gone through a lot. David's gone through a lot. And the devil wants to rob him. And the devil wants to rob you. Discouragement and unbelief leads to big problems in our life. If you continue reading the book of Genesis and you read chapter 16, right after God cuts this covenant with Abraham makes this promise, prophesies over him. Genesis 16, maybe you know this. That's when Sarah says, hey, why don't you take my, my servant, my handmaid, Hagar, and have a child with her, and that can be ours. And Abraham's like, okay, fine. Like, what? Abraham, what are you thinking? God just, don't you remember what just happened? Mistakes. Because of discouragement and waiting, discouragement and waiting, we can step outside of God's will and think there's something better, there's something more. I can do, you know, and we want to take matters into our own hands and do things our own way. And we've learned that lesson here. Peter does that. He's discouraged. God already told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. And, oh, Lord, I won't. Yeah, you will, Peter. You know, I know you. I know everything about you. Remember? No, I won't do that. Crud, I did it. And then he gets to a point, he's like, all right, I'm going fishing. And a bunch of guys are like, I'm going with you, Peter. And they head out to the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and it represented his old life, his old job, his old way to provide a, 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 an income and all these things. And Peter goes and does it. Why? Because he's discouraged. And that's what discouragement does. It pushes us out of God's will and plan. And we go back to our, maybe our old life, our old way of thinking. That's what Elijah did. He runs and hides in the cave. Maybe you're waiting on God's promise. You're discouraged. You're fearful. You're doubting. It's easy to start pressing. One pastor shared this. I've read this before. It's called Satan's Tool Discouragement. It says, once upon a time, it was announced that the devil was going out of business and would sell all his equipment to those who were willing to pay the price. And on the big day of the sale, all his tools were attractively displayed. There was envy, jealousy, hatred, malice, deceit, sensuality, pride, idolatry, and other implements of evil on display. And each of the tools was marked with its own price tag. And over in the corner by itself was a harmless-looking wedge-shaped tool, very much worn down. But still it bore a higher price than any of the others. And someone asked the devil what it was. And he answered, well, that's discouragement. And the next question came quickly. And why is it priced so high? Even though it's plain to see it's more worn than any of the others. Because, replied the devil, it's more useful to me than any of the others. I pry open and get into the man's heart with that when I can't get near him with any other tool. And once I get inside, I can use him whenever, in whatever way that suits me best. It's worn well because I use it on everybody I can, and few people even know it belongs to me. It's a tool that allows me to use every other tool. And this tool was priced so high that no one could buy it. And to this day, it's never been sold. It still belongs to the devil, and he still uses it on mankind. That's a reality. Discouragement is a great tool in the devil's hands. He wants to push you out of God's will. He wants to push you out of God's will. And, and David, in the last chapter, we saw God's supernatural protection. And David trusting God and not taking matters, matters into his own hand. But it says this in verse 19 of chapter 26. You probably don't even have to turn the page to read this. It says, Now therefore, please, David is speaking to Saul, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. How can I make it right? But if it's the children of men, may they be cursed before the lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the lord, saying, Go serve other 
gods. David's saying, man, they're pushing me out of the land. They're pushing me into pagan territory, enemy territory, where they worship other gods. I'm thinking about that, right? And we get a hint that David is thinking about that. In Hebrews chapter 2, you don't have to turn there because of time. It says this. Therefore, Hebrews chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, it says we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away. So important to take hold on to the things that you've heard in the word of God, to hold on to them. He says, otherwise, you're going to drift. It's like the word of God is an anchor for you, and it holds you in place, right? Have you ever gone fishing, right? We, we were at the Thousand Islands. I've had tons of trouble in the Thousand Islands with boats. Uh, my party boat broke down last year, and it still broke down. Uh, but this year, I had a canoe, and I had a little electric motor, and we're cruising along the shores, and I get to a spot, and I didn't, for some reason, bring an anchor. I bought one, but I didn't have one. Uh, and I get to a spot where I thought, all right, perfect. All right, cast, guys. And we'd all cast, reel it in. By the time we reeled it in, we we're in on the shore, hitting the rocks, in the weeds. We got, it's like, oh my goodness, we need an anchor. And that's the reality of what the Word of God is for your life. It's an anchor. You've got to give heed to what the Bible says. If you don't, you'll drift. I've got one more story to read. This is from another pastor. It says, according to an old story, an, unfamiliar far an ungodly farmer died, and it was discovered in his will that he left, left his farm to the devil. And in court, they didn't quite know what to do with his bequest. How do you give a farm to the devil? Finally, the judge decided the best way to carry out these wishes of the deceased is to allow the farm to grow weeds and the soil to erode, and the house and barn to rot. In our opinion, the best way to leave something to the devil is to do nothing. We can leave our lives to the devil in the same way, by doing nothing and, and letting uh, the current drive us wherever it will, right? And that's our life. If you're not going to hang on to the word of God as an anchor, your life is just going to drift by your feelings and emotions, and which change all the time, Right? David has been in this trial for seven to eight years. That's a long time. That's a long time, seven or eight years. I don't know how long you've been in your trial. We're, we're going through things in this life. Seven or eight years. You know how long Job was in his trial? We talk about Job. You've read the book of Job. You know about Job. Job had a hard go. You know how long that lasted? Six months. Job's trials lasted six months. David's been in this seven or eight years now, running for his life, trying to hold on to the promises of God, God's word, and yet experiencing great difficulties and hardships. David's human. So are we, and we go through these same things. I brought my computer, which I'm sure I won't get to work. Maybe I can. Oh, yeah. I want to read you a couple scriptures. I did this for time. David wrote these in this time. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord, and why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David's perception is God is hiding himself. He's standing afar off. Is he laughing at me? Psalm 13 says this. David wrote, how long will you forget me, O Lord? Do you ever feel like that? God, you've forgotten me. Do you even know what I'm going through? Did you? I'm here. Hey, how long are you going to forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then you guys know Psalm 22, prophetic of Jesus David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear. And in the night season, I'm not silent. David is struggling, wrestling with discouragement, but he's growing. 
right? The next psalm in order after Psalm 22 is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David will learn that God is my shepherd. I'm learning to trust him. He's leading my life. He's growing me. So it says this in verse 1 of chapter 27. David says in his heart, now I shall perish someday at the hand of Saul, and there's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. David said in his heart, that's his first problem. Your heart is your seat of your emotions, your feelings. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 6 says, He that trusts in his heart is a fool. If you trust in your heart, you're a fool. Jeremiah 17, 9, here's why. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You hear people all the time saying, Oh, trust your heart, trust your feelings. It's dangerous, and I understand what people are saying, but it's very dangerous because that's exactly what David does here, and it drives him into enemy territory for 16 months, 16 months of compromise and wasted time that he can't get back because he literally lies to himself. He says, I'm going to perish someday at the hand of Saul. David, that's not true, but he feels it more than anything. That's exactly how he feels. I think it's better for us to trust the Lord, to test our feelings, to examine them, to see if they're sinful or there's compromise involved in what we're about to do, right? Trust the Lord. David has a priest with him. And if you remember the last time he goes to Gath, because that's where he ends up, the last time he goes to Gath, uh, he was in Nob, and he goes to the priest. He says, oh man, do you have any provisions? And and, and, and the king's business was so fast, I didn't have time to grab a weapon. Do you have a sword here too, Ahimelech? He's like, yeah, you know, I, we got one sword. It's, the, you know, it's Goliath's sword. And David's like, man, there's none other than Goliath. There's nothing like that sword. And David, it says uh, that he has to reach over. He says it's right behind the ephod. And David has to reach over the ephod to grab the sword. And then he ends up in Gath. And he has to pretend he's crazy. He has to lie to the, to the king there because that's where the sword drove him. He could have reached a little, not quite as far, and grabbed the ephod and said, because that's what the ephod represented. It represented seeking God's will. That's what the priest would wear. He could have grabbed that and said, God, what do you have for my life? This is nuts. Saul wants to kill me. He's got everyone in charge. And they're after me. They got a, they've got a, a, you know, a, a hit on my life or whatever. What do I do? But now what he does is he grabs the sword. And David does the same thing here. And so the, the priest is right there. Hey, let's pray. What should we do next? Now David says in his heart, well, this is where we're going. I'm going to do this. He said, and he lies to himself. I'm going to perish one day. At the hand of Saul. David, that's not true. That's not what Samuel told you. That's not what Jonathan told you. That's not what Abigail told you. And that's not what Saul told you twice. That's not what God told you. David, why are you telling yourself that? But it's so easy when we're discouraged and down to begin to tell ourselves and believe what our feelings are telling us. Man, I'm so bummed out. Nobody loves me, nobody cares. Everyone's forgotten me. God forgot me. I'm, in the, I'm praying, right? No, you're growing. God is chipping David and making him a king. He's molding him. We go through hard things in this life. Yeah, you're going to go through hard things in this life, whether you're a Christian or not. But when you're a Christian, you know that God is working everything to the good in your life and mine if you're saved. It's not what people told him. David, that's not true, what you're saying. He's actually closer than ever to being king. He's only 
two years away. He's gone seven or eight years. He's closer than ever. And we can get so super discouraged with what we're going through. Two years is a long time, though, isn't it? That's a long time. But he's going to spend 16 months. He's going to waste 16 months of it. Maybe God maybe it would have happened quicker if he didn't run there. But David basically is telling himself that God's not going to do what he said. God's a liar. He's not going to protect me. He's not going to provide for me. He's not going to do what he tells me in the word. And the Bible says that God cannot lie. He's not going to lie. You can hold on to the word of God for your life. Peter wrote this, probably maybe thinking about his discouragement and going back fishing. In First Peter or Second Peter chapter one, that there's exceeding great and precious promises for us as believers. Somebody counted them like almost forty. Some one count is forty five hundred promises. The best promise for you, you know. My wife just asked me the other day, "What's your favorite scripture? What scripture do you?" I said, "Hon, I don't know. It changes all the time. Like, it, it, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Uh, uh, you know, God's going to complete the good work He started. You know, all these scriptures. It depends on what you're going through." That the scripture you need. And it can change. Right? What's the most important scripture to you? Man, at the moment, it's this. Last month or last week, it was this. God got me through that trial with this word. And for you and I, we need to know the Bible. Or how are you going to have an anchor? How are you going to get any direction for your life without that? So David is processing this thing. He says, there's nothing better for me. Really, there's nothing better, David, than to go to Gath again? That's it. David's like, there's, that's the best thing. And, 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 and he says, I got to speedily escape. You know, the devil's pushing him. You better do it now. You might not have another chance, right? That's an the, that's the infomercial tactic, isn't it? For, if you want this price, it's limited. You've got to order within the next 29 minutes, right? It's the infomercial you've seen for 10 years. It's the same one, the same number. But you've got 18 minutes left, and the, count, and the, the clock's running, right? And that's what the devil's trying to do, make, make you make a hasty decision. You have to do it now. You have to do it. You've got to act. You'll never get married. You'll never get, you know, whatever it is. You have to do it. And then he says, Saul will despair of me to, to, to seek me anymore in any part of Israel, and I'll escape out of his hand. And you know what? That, that actually happens. Verse 2 says, David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David dwelt in, with Achish in Gath. He and his men, each man with his household, David with his two wives, Ahinoam, and the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. David affected so many people, thousands of people, 600 men and their wives and children. A couple thousand people maybe entered into Gath. And it says, and, and, and Saul sought him no more. Mission accomplished, right? Good plan, short term. Compromise can do that. Compromise can do that. And, and the enemy welcomes him in. We're going to see that. Verse 12, he, that, that uh, Achish is going to say, man, David, you're so amazing. You can be my servant forever. And that's what the devil wants you to do. Come and serve me. I'll make life easier for you. Follow my plan. Follow my will. Do what I want you to do. And it says this, David said to Achish, if, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in, in the country that I might dwell there. For why should your servant, now he's calling him, David saying, I'm your servant. You're my Lord. This gets pretty scary here for David. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And so Achish gave him Ziklag that day, and therefore Ziklag belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. God redeemed that. That was property that was supposed to be Israel's anyways. God did some redemption 
in David's life. Ziklag, this place of relief, comfort, and peace. When we turn to chapter uh, 30, I think it's chapter 30, David's going to be destroyed. He's going to lose everything in Ziklag, right? It's going to be, become a place of ruin and loss because they're going to get attacked and everything's going to be stolen. It's, you know, in the eight years David was, was getting chased by Saul, seven or eight years, nothing like that happened. And in fact, when he leaves when, in Ziklag, all the men started saying, let's kill David. What are we doing here? What a bad mistake. This is nuts. Cannot believe it. They never said that before. But because of David's compromise, man, his life is turned upside down, and he turns everyone's life upside down. But it looks good right now. We're going to read a little more. Uh, I don't know if you guys like jelly bellies. You guys like those things, those little jelly beans that are like, I don't know how many flavors, 50, 100. There's a lot of flavors. Some are my favorite. I like the buttered popcorn. I do like, uh, there's a few that I like. Uh, but then there's a, a game called Bean Boozled. Have you ever played that game? Like your favorite, your favorite Jelly Belly, there's another one that looks just like it, but it's actually like skunk or dirty socks. Or You guys play that game? And then your kids give you like something that looks like your favorite Jelly Bean, and it's actually not. Well, that's what the devil's doing to David here. Like, oh, this looks so good, David. And he gets bean boozled here, right? He gets dirty socks on this move. It's not good for David. Uh, but it initially looks good. And don't think because things look good in your life momentary, momentarily or temporarily that God's hands on it because David is going to have some success and he's, gonna, he's not going to lose a battle there. But he's ultimately going to lose his men and all his stuff. And then he has to seek the Lord for it. I'm, I'm sorry. And God restores it and redeems it. And David learns a lesson. So hopefully we don't have to learn this lesson. That compromise, that we have to compromise or step outside of God's will. So it says this. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months, 16 months. He doesn't write a psalm. He doesn't journal his thoughts. You know, all those things. Uh, he's dry. Time he can't get back. Don't you, don't, isn't there times in your life like, man, I wish I, w- I, wish I could get that back. That he's outside of God's will, he's in compromise, he's a bad example. And it says this in verse 8, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the, and, and the Gergazites and the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from old. As you go to Shur, as far as the land of Egypt, and when, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man or woman alive, but he took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the apparel, and he returned and came to Achish. So he would share his, the spoils with Achish. And Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah or against the southern area of the, of the Jeremielites. Can someone say that better? Or against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did, and thus was his behavior all that time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David. Like, oh, you're fighting our enemies. You're en- you know, and it's Israel. He's thinking, oh, the southern area, that area of, of, of Israel, you're fighting my enemies. Your enemy is Saul. And David is lying and deceiving. And he has to kill everyone. And it looks good right now, but David will reap what he has sown. You know, and that's the reality of your life and mine. You might be redeemed here today, born again, saved, stepping out of God's will, and you're going to reap what you sow. doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It means you're sowing a lot of seeds that may be bad right now that are going to grow into something that you won't like down the road. Right? And the common theme with David as you follow his life, one of his struggles is lying, isn't it? You remember that's what he did in Nob. Him and Jonathan came up with a lie about his dad. Hey, tell him this, do that. You know, here we're going to see a, a, a terrible lie as he commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her husband. David, and, and, and I've said it before, Psalm 119, verse 29, 
David will say, remove from me the way of lying. It's never good. There's consequences and repercussions. We think this little lie, some of David's lies are small, but they affected so many people. They seem small to us, right? We might call them a white lie or whatever, but they affect so many people. All the priests of Nob were killed because of a little white lie, right? It's, it can be bad. We'll close there. I went a little long because of the baptism uh, refresher. Lord, we're thankful, God, for your word. Your word is an anchor to us, God. We don't want to drift in this life, Lord. You've given us your word. Uh, so many promises we have, so much truth to hold on to, Lord, that there's no need for us to drift. Lord, we know you're a good shepherd, that you lead and guide our life. David will learn that. And, and pen that for us, Lord, that we can hold on to. That you lead us beside still waters and into green pastures. You restore our soul. Lord, that, 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 that there's a valley of the shadow of death that many of us walk through. It can be very difficult. Your desire is to restore our soul, to heal us, to teach us, to mold us. And we hold on to that truth, God. Thank you for it. Thank you for these lessons. These are men. The best of men are men at best, and that's what David is. He's just a man. He makes mistakes, Lord, and, and, and we can refer to him. And so many people in, in, in the book of Samuel, because we mess up too, God, and we need your grace. I pray we can learn from this, God. Discouragement is such a horrible thing, hard to go through. But it's not, it's, it's not sinful to be discouraged. What we do with that, Lord, is, is, is something we need help with. God, we want to stay in your will and walk in your truth and hold on to it, Lord. We love you in your name.